Hi, this is John. And today on the podcast is our third and final live Q&A event that we did while in California. This one was from Sunday night from Berean Bible Fellowship in Palmdale, California. And we cover some subjects that may be a little bit close to home for many. If you've been listening to Theocast for a while or you're new to Theocast, what does the Christian life look like when you hold the perspective of you are both a sinner in the eyes of God and yet a saint? You're a child. This is known as sumiustus et peccator. Some would say if you hold this perspective, you can turn out to be an antinomian. What does it look like to bear fruit? And how long can someone truly struggle with sin before they should start questioning their salvation? Really important questions, and we hope this is beneficial. The first 45 minutes is available for free for anyone who wants to listen, and the remainder of the conversation is available for our Total Access members. You can learn more about that by visiting theocast.org. We hope you enjoy. Next Sunday is Reformation Sunday, and we want to talk tonight about one of the most important principles in the Christian life, honestly, but certainly one of the most important biblical principles that was recovered and articulated clearly in the Reformation. And that is the reality that even upon conversion, the Christian is at the same time saint and sinner. As Martin Luther would talk about it in the Latin we are simul justus et peccator, at the same time justified and sinner. You're not truly reformed unless you can say that, so let's all repeat. Simul justus et peccator, <laughs> yes. So I know it's our conviction that if you get this wrong, it has all kinds of implications for the Christian life. And in particular, it has all kinds of implications with respect to finding rest in Christ or not. That's right. And so that's how we really want to have this conversation tonight, because we could talk for hours and hours and hours about, at the same time, justified and sinner, but we want to talk about it from that perspective of how that relates to resting in Christ in the daily grind of the Christian life in a fallen world. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. One of the missions of Theocast is, you know, when Theocast first got started, it was four guys talking about pretty much whatever we felt was fun. And as the ministry progressed, we realized what we were truly trying to do is help people find their assurance and then enjoy the Christian life. I don't know what your experience has been, but there were times where I dreaded the Christian life. It was complicated. It was confusing. I, I really never knew if God was happy with me. And as we have tried to unfold theology, specifically a historic Reformed confessional theology, the goal has been—I'm not boring, huh? The goal has no, I'm, been— I'm tired. It's okay. <laughs> the goal has been, as our tagline now is, helping weary pilgrims rest in Christ. Absolutely. And I would say one of the ways in which I have found tremendous clarity mm-hmm. and tremendous rest is understanding my current state before God. Not only sure. my position as far as God has accepted me as his child, but the condition I find myself in. So tonight is really going to be about that conversation of you all want to be holy, but you can't be, and it drives you nuts. And you yeah. then you say, well, John, how is it that I want to be holy that I can't? Well, What do I do about this? Not only does it drive you nuts, it haunts you. That's right. It's, it's both, right? So not only am I frustrated, but I'm discouraged. I'm right. thinking, man, like I, I want to be something that I'm not. That's right. 
And that's legitimate yeah. in our experience. To, to sound yeah. into great deep depression. Yes. Yeah, I mean, our brother Jimmy has talked about this. Sure. And I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive to this too. I mean, Luther's, you know, Ochtenfung, right? The crisis of the soul is, is real to me. I noticed to you, to Jimmy too. And um, yeah, we're going to talk about that tonight. I mean, I, we haven't scripted this at all. We really don't script a lot at Theocast. We just start having a conversation and we trust the Lord and where it will go. I might start with a little bit of Bible if you're okay with that. No. Seriously. Here at Theocast, we think that the Bible is a good place to start. So here we go. We're going to, we're going to begin with Romans 5.1. So I, this like Romans 5.6.7. And John, please jump in wherever you want to. And yeah. you, may, you may, I don't even know, want to, want to add to what I'm saying. Yeah. So Romans 5.1 is a great verse. Therefore, after Paul has just talked about the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, you know, you were in Adam, now you're in Christ by, by faith. And his obedience merit counted to you. He gives Abraham as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to go on to talk more about Adam and Christ, like that, that first and second Adam reality after this. He says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to begin to unpack what that means for us, that you know, we do have a hope in the future even as we look toward final salvation because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He then talks about how we were in Adam and now we're in Jesus and how all of the righteousness and the merits of Christ have been counted to us by faith. And in Romans 6, he talks about the reality that, hey, you have been by faith united to Christ. You've been baptized into him. And now you're no longer under the dominion of sin. And you have become obedient from the heart, Romans six fourteen. And in Romans 7, most famously, and this is where I think I want to take us, John, and please, you know, jump on this from here. Paul writes words that are so, man, relevant. <laughs> You know, we, we always struggle and think, oh my gosh, how can we be relevant today? There are no more relevant words in the Bible than Romans 7 for the Christian's experience, where Paul talks about the fact that he doesn't understand his own actions, Romans seven fifteen and following. I, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I don't do what I want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And he talks about it, there's nothing good that dwells in him. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out, to which we're like, bro, you're reading my mail. Like, this is exactly my experience, preacher. You're reading my mail. Like, this is my experience of the Christian life day in and day out. He goes on to say, I don't do the good that I want, but the evil that I do is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And he continues to talk in this way. But before that, he talks about how he delights in the law of God in his inner man. And so here's the thing. I think in Romans 5, 6, 7, we see all of these things encapsulated. Our justification through the work of Christ alone, imputed to us by faith alone, grounded in the grace of God alone. And the reality of the fact that something has changed. That's right. There's a new reality in our lives. We've been united to Christ. We've been freed from the dominion of sin. And now we can obey because we can, we obey from the heart. And then we see Paul talking about that in Romans 7. I delight in the law of God in my inner man. Well, that didn't come from us. I mean, God had to do that, right? And so then at the same time, as all of that is going on, something new is happening. There is also something still terribly wrong. John, I know that you've often framed it in these ways. There's something new and there's something wrong. That's right. Still. Yeah. Well, what's the problem? It's that, man, there's a war going on. That's right. There's a war inside of me. This is Galatians 5.17 as well. 
the flesh wages war against our spirit so that it ends up in us doing things that we don't want to do and not doing the things that we want to do. That's right. And so this is the reality we're talking about. It's very simple. It's biblical Pauline theology that we are justified and have peace with God in Christ. And yet at the same time in our experience, we're not doing the good that we want to do. We're often doing the bad that we don't want to do. And we cry out with Paul, wretched man that I am. Yeah. Who will deliver me? So Thanks we, be to God for Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. So the experience of the Christian life is you come to the reality of the gospel. I'm a sinner. I'm in need of Christ. And there's this glorious transformation. It's almost like buying a new car. It's like, man, it's the, the new. The smell is amazing. Right. Every time you get in, you turn the car on. It's like, oh, it just, it, this is so great. And then there's a tick, and then there's a ding, and then there's this, and then there's that, and then it's the first tire block. And then all of a sudden you realize this, this isn't new anymore. Well, what you tend to realize is that being new in Christ doesn't mean all problems solved. Now, the biggest problem that you have and the only problem that matters is you're standing before God. That's solved forever, amen, by faith, through grace, no reason to worry. This, this, I'm going to end up pounding this thing one day, and so just, just, be, just work with me. I apologize. Yeah. The, 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 difference, this, the second side of this, and this is the side of it that I didn't understand for a very long time, and it robbed me of joy, it robbed me of confusion, and I became a very fake Christian. I never admitted to anybody mm-hmm. I had deep struggles. I had deep problems. So I hid them until they turned into depression, until they turned into anxiety. And then there's these, what we call these burst moments where I just can't hold it anymore. Because has anybody ever been around somebody, or maybe you experience yourself where there's a problem with your health and you don't know why? Mm. It is actually, scientifically proven, more frustrating to not know what the problem is than to know what it is, right? Because it's the unknown. So you're being told you're a new creation. You're a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. The Spirit lives within you. You now should be producing fruit. You should be walking in the image of Christ, and then you wake up the next morning and go, that's not how I feel. I feel dirty and dark and dumb and stupid, and I feel depressed and I feel anxious, and I'm mad because I'm still struggling with sin. All these other Christians at church, they're not struggling with sin. I'm the one Christian in the world that struggles with sin. Am I anybody agreeing with me here? <laughs> Amen, yeah. brother. Um, so then you, you hear Paul, and what I was told is that Romans 7 that was before Paul was saved, which is extremely confusing. Yeah, we could use strong language about how bad that theology is. It's bad. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Where we, where the greatest argument we can make that Romans 7 is absolutely post-conversion experience is that Paul describes himself as being the greatest sinner he knows. Sure. So let, let, let's just compare Paul's yeah. life to ours just yeah. for a second, okay? Uh, well, let's see. He spent... A lot of time in the desert with Jesus. Anybody do that? I mean, really with Jesus. Anybody do that? No. He met Jesus on the road. Like, Jesus personally converted him. Anybody else have that happen? He actually went to heaven. 
Anybody else have that happen? He wrote multiple epistles. Anybody else have that happen? He brought somebody back from the dead. Anybody else have that happen? Not lately. And then Paul says, there's no one greater sinner than I that I know of. Yeah, of whom I am the foremost sinner, right? So if a man could claim conquering, victorious Christian life, that's the man who could claim it. And he says, I don't know of anybody who's more sinner than I am. He talks in Philippians 3, right, about how he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he lists all these reasons why he could have confidence in himself. That's right. And he's like, but I know the truth. I I consider all these things as rubbish because— I am seeking after a righteousness that is— The surpassing righteousness. Right, the surpassing righteousness that comes to me by faith, not by anything that I've done. Yeah. You know? I mean, so he gets it. So there was—when I when the first time I understood this reality from Luther, I remember the first time reading it. I remember exactly where I was. Mm. I I literally threw the book down, and I started weeping because I realized— I know. I am not crazy. I'm not crazy. I haven't lost my ever-loving mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, truth in advertising, we watch for fun. <laughs> There's a Twitter feed called like IFB Preacher. I don't even know. It's it's an independent Fundamental Baptist Preacher Clips, and yeah, that's where you got that basically. From. Anyway, yeah. that's fine. Um, now, I remember reading something that was formative for me as I encountered Calvinism and even the the Reformed faith, uh, one of the first books outside of the Bible that I read by a contemporary living guy at the time was The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And chapter five of that book is entitled The Insanity of Luther. And he talks about Luther's crisis. I mean, how he understood, at least in measure, how holy God is and how righteous God's standard is. And he understood, at least in measure, how unrighteous and unholy he was. And so Luther's like, this is why many in the room may know, and many online may know, that Luther was a monk of monks. If Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, Luther was a monk of monks. Why? Because he had a tender conscience. He would spend hours a day in confession. He would beat himself. Uh, He would do all of these kinds of things and still was wrecked in his conscience because he knew it wasn't enough. Because he could never measure up, he could never meet the standard, yeah. you know? And so, yeah, like, you read these kinds of things, and I think for any of us that are assessing ourselves honestly, it's like, well, yeah, of course, we could never try measure up. And so, what's the answer? Mm-hmm. It has to be something that's outside of me, that my justification, my standing before God, my safety, my peace, my rest, my security, it has to come outside of yeah. me. And that's the biblical gospel that Christ has accomplished for you, what you never could accomplish for yourself. Mm. And we're trusting him. We're resting in him. And then at the same time, this side of heaven, we're not fully sanctified. Mm -hmm. We're still in need of grace. And so therefore, therefore, excuse me, we are at the same time justified, reconciled to God and yet sinner. Mm. And that's the great tension that we live in. Mm. And it's hard. Yeah, and I think yeah. the conversation, what, what I think we, it would be f- helpful to flesh out is the difference between new and old, right? Yeah, sure. So how new is new and how old is old? Well, the old man before Christ, before the gospel, before a generation, is dead and unable to believe and unable to do anything that is pleasing to God. Okay, that's, that's full old man. So now what does new man look like? 
How would you describe a new creation in Christ, but yet still living in this earth? What What does a new creation in Christ mean? So I'm I'm thinking of biblical language. We have been united to Christ by faith. So it's Romans six, which is a which is status. Status. Mm-hmm. We have been raised to walk in newness of life. Mm-hmm. Romans six. Mm-hmm. We walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand, Ephesians 2.10. Which is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. We delight in the law of God in our inner man, Romans 7, 21, 22. Um, we have become obedient from the heart, Romans 6.14. And we we desire to honor God. And we, in terms of the, the kind of... I want to be thoughtful about how I answer this question. This is on the spot. Yeah. Um, what's new about My us? favorite questions. Sure. <laughs> yeah, we, obviously we want to glorify God. Yeah. You know, uh, we, we understand that we have peace with God, Romans 5. 1, That's right. Right. And so then we're also mindful of the reality that we have been sealed with the promised yeah. Holy Spirit, right. Ephesians yeah. 1, yeah. 13, 14. Um, we are guaranteed that he who began a good work in us will complete it. Mm. We're guaranteed that Jesus has perfected for all time mm. those who are being sanctified, Hebrews ten fourteen. We know and trust that Jesus can save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews seven twenty five. Mm. You know, we, we know and cling to these realities of John 6, John 10, John 17, that Jesus is going to do this and lose none. That's right. Anyway, I mean, this is how we live, right? Like yeah. we, we, we're looking, you, right. you hear me talking and you're like, bro, you keep talking about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. Because that's the point. It's that we're always, we're looking to Christ mm-hmm. And we're confident in God and his faithfulness to us and Christ's faithfulness to us, not confidence in ourselves that we're going to be able to conquer sin Mm -hmm. in and of our own strength. I could talk more. Right. So I would say— You take over, John. Yeah, no, to add add, just add what you're you're saying is the, the diagnosis process is very important here. So when we say new, and Paul says new creation, we often think, oh, okay— if it's new, that means all of the old struggles are gone. That's not what he means. So you no. have you have he he's talking about there there is a creation that's never existed. So to create something that's new. So let's think about this is this is not a trick question. Let's think about the history of man. Is there is there you, you have Adam who falls, and from that moment on you have humanity who is imperfect and tainted with sin from that point forward. And then Christ shows up on the scene. Now you have a second kind of new. of So you have fallen humanity and you have perfection, right? Two distinct, very clear realities. And then all of a sudden, you have people who are indwelt by the Spirit. They're regenerated. And Paul says, now we have a new kind of creature, new creation. We have a new kind of cre- You have one that was perfectly holy and those who were 100% unholy. Now you have one where who, in the eyes of God, their standing and position is holy, but their body remains unholy. And so Paul describes this as a war, right? Our flesh battles against our spirit. Right. And the fact that that internal war exists at all 
is evidence of grace and it is evidence of new creation. So if you're experiencing that kind of internal war, the Romans 7 reality, the Galatians 5 reality, well, why are you even experiencing it? Mm. It's because you've been born again. Mm. It's because you have been regenerated in your inner being. And there is now the spirit of God in you that is waging war with your flesh. That's a new experience for you. So as we think about even the flow of Romans, the greatest letter letter ever written, and Hebrews is a close second, right? You think about the flow of Paul's argument. He talks about the imputation of Christ's righteousness and merit to us in Romans 5, the, the new identity that we have in Romans 6. But then he talks about the new war that's on our hands in Romans 7. And then our new hope in Romans 8. That's right. Right? So, I mean, again, it's, it's like, like, think about this for a second, that the fact that you're engaging in this internal war that is so real and so hard and sometimes, honestly, so discouraging and draining where you're just like, oh, my gosh, like, I don't know that I can fight this again today. The fact that you're even in that war in the first place is evidence of God's grace to you beyond measure. That's right. You know, so take heart, weary saint. That's right. You know, the, the Spirit of God has taken up residence in you mm-hmm. because you're God's child. Right. And therefore you feel this way. Yeah. So when every single person in a context, so let's let's just pretend we're all gonna accept the fact that we are the greatest sinner that we know. Do not think I'm excusing your sin. You should find your sin extremely offensive. I'm gonna give you an illustration sure. I read recently, and I can't claim this illustration, so I'm going to give you off, off the bat, this, this belongs to Claire Ferguson, this clarity on this. So in his book called Grace Alone, which I would highly recommend you to read, it's, it's super helpful. He, he points out that Jesus Christ was put on the cross, and he was actually convicted of a crime and then killed for that crime. Most people don't know this part of the narrative, but why is it that Jesus died on the cross? Anybody know? We're going to do a crowd interaction. Why, why was Jesus put on the cross? Publicly, narratively speaking. Blasphemy. He called himself God. Now, in our Christian culture, you know, blasphemy means you say two words together that you're not supposed to say, God and damn. You put those two together, that's bad. Welcome to Theocast. That's blasphemy. That's not what Jesus was accused of. Yeah. Jesus was saying the authority and power God exists to say yes and no, I will and you will obey, belongs to me. So they took that, and God in his sovereignty, according to the book of Acts and the book of Ephesians, God in his sovereignty put Jesus on the cross for the sin we are guilty of. Let's back up the narrative and go to the book of, let's go to the book of Genesis in the garden. Satan is offering a fruit to Adam, and in that he is saying, if you eat this, what did he say? You will be what? Like God. That's right. He will be like God. Also known as what? Blasphemy. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died in your place taking on your sin of blasphemy. Let me make it a little bit more relevant to you since you're thinking, well, I'm not claiming to be God and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking on God's authority. Oh, but you are. Here's the deal. God has said, this is how you will live. 
and you must live this way perfectly. And the moment you deny me that obedience, because he has the right to deny it, sure. you are saying, no, God, I think my authority is greater than your authority. I'll do it my way, not your way. Immediately blasphemy. Every time you choose to go against God and his word, you are committing the very sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm sorry, friends. There's no way you can take your sin lightly. A sin that kills a holy God on a cross is not a sin you should take lightly. Amen, brother. So we are not antinomian. And I want to say that slamming my fist down. I don't want to mess up the microphones as hard as I possibly can. But you need to understand when I say you're a sinner and you struggle with sin, I am not okay in your sin. So one of the things that we'll say here, um, I think pretty regularly, is the fact that sin is normal, but it is not okay. You need to maintain both. That's just a quick kind of for free interjection. We do get charged often with being antinomian because of the way that we'll herald Christ in the gospel. We do take solace in the fact that Martin Lloyd-Jones said that if you're not being accused of being antinomian, you're not preaching the gospel. That's right. But yeah, I mean, sin is normal because we're all fallen in Adam and, this, and we battle against our own corruption. And that is true for every human without exception. And at the same time, sin is not okay. Nobody is exonerated. But the it. reality is, so here, this, no, phrase, this phrase makes people uncomfortable. I like making people uncomfortable. I think it's fun. This phrase makes people uncomfortable. God expects you to sin. True. And people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. think about it. If he yes. didn't expect you to sin, he wouldn't tell you to confess your sins when you do. That's right. Well, I would even back it up. If God did not expect and know and ordain, dare I say. Oh, boy. Oh, smoke. <laughs> that we would sin... There would not have been the covenant of redemption in eternity past that, that God the Son would come and save his people. That's right. God has all, I mean, before the world was made, right? Christ, like God made the world knowing that Christ would come to redeem it. I mean, it, it's clear in the Bible. That's right. So, yeah, of course he expects us to sin and he gives us his law, not for one second thinking that anybody could ever keep it. No. In order to like do this and live and live with me forever. That's right. It's to point us to the Savior, to drive us outside of ourselves, to wreck us. Like, no, you could never do this. That's right. And now you're being driven to the only one who has. Mm. And then, of course, yes, by the power of God and the regenerating presence of the Holy Spirit in us, we now actually delight in the law of God and desire to obey it in a way that we didn't before. You know, And we look to the law of God as our perfect guide for living, all the while trusting Christ for our standing before God. That's right. Yeah, it's the way that the Lord has set it up. So this, and, yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, even in the Old Testament, people will be like, brother, how did this work in the Old Testament? Okay, well, there's a thing called the sacrificial system. So as God gave the law, he also gave the sacrificial system with it. Well, why? Because as he gave the law, people, even though the, the Israelites vowed, you know, passionately, yes, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Okay, well, shortly thereafter, they're making a golden calf and dancing around it, just like we do. They're no different than we are. Right? Well, God gave the sacrificial system. Why? Because it would remind the people daily as atonement was having to be made for their sin. Here is the law of God. If you do this, you'll live, but nobody has done it. You're now looking to atoning sacrifice for your sins hmm. as the only hope that you have. So it's like, where is Christ in the Old Testament? He's everywhere, but he's all over the sacrificial system. That's good. Anyway, yeah, we could talk no, about that. No, that's good. That's yeah. helpful. So now we're coming down to a part of understanding saint and sinner, some of you to stick back door is being able to 
understand both sides. So you have saint, mm-hmm. which is, to be clarified, he does not mean you now act perfect. Right. It you're means declared. Your position. So when God looks at you, he says, child, I mm-hmm. love you more than Amen. I I can't love you any more than I, than I love you. I cannot accept you any more than I accept you. I cannot save you any more than I've saved you. You are my child forever and yeah. ever. Amen. To Amen. Repeat it again. It's not that you are perfect. You've been declared perfect. Yeah. It is righteous. not made yeah. perfect. It's declaration. It's yeah. declared perfect. Declarative. It's, so that's it's done. the saint side. Now we need to talk yeah. about the sinner side. Yeah. You are a different kind of sinner. Here's why it's different. You actually see that your sin is offensive. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people come to Justin and I as pastors, or even through Theocast, we get emails and people, they just struggle. They're like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm a believer. I, I can't tell that God truly has saved me. Mm-hmm. And I ask him this one simple question. Your sin bother you? Like, do you, do you realize mm-hmm. when you sin, you're like, man, God really doesn't want me to do that. Is that the conclusion you come to? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. definitely the conclusion I come to do you believe that Jesus was a sufficient and is a sufficient savior? Yes. Do you realize that you can't have that concept of saint and sinner unless the spirit dwells within you? That that battle is the battle Paul talks about in Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? That's Paul describing his struggle. Yeah. So when you diagnose yourself, okay, it's very clear I have faith in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, I would not declare Jesus as king of my life. Mm. And it's very clear that when I sin, it bothers me. We've now diagnosed this. And that diagnosis is the only way, in my humble opinion, to find hope. Because I don't, <laughs> I don't know about you. I realize my life isn't getting any better than technically it is now. I mean, I've done pretty much everything you can do as a Christian to make your life easier, and it just doesn't get any easier. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't. And that's, that's why Peter and Paul both say, blessed are those who anticipate the return of Christ, yeah. because they realize this life cannot offer you everything that's in Christ. Well, and There's e- more to come. And even if you have those seasons where, you're like, man, I'm on a winning streak. You know, and I'm every time, you know, that's a relative term. You joke about it, right? Like, you know, illustratively, like every time I pull the lever, you know, jackpot, trip seven, I'm just killing it. Like those seasons are so short lived. Yeah. And honestly, obviously there's a, there's a little bit of like naivete mixed in with that because it's like, okay, well, if you were really thinking well about your heart and your mind and all of the things that God requires of you, you would never delude yourself into thinking that you're crushing it. But even if you think that you are, yeah. those seasons are so, so short lived because there's going to come a time in a minute or an hour or a day or a week where you're going to be overwhelmed again yeah. with the wretchedness and the sinfulness of your own heart and your own mind, your own body. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, like, and you're wrecked. Like you said, brother, I mean, I'm thinking about my own experience this week. There's not a morning, and this is not to sound so being absurd. Around, being around me has sanctified you and of made course you more holy. Is, of course it is. <laughs> Some things don't merit a response. So, and I love this man dearly. So I, I'm just thinking about my own life, and this is not to sound ridiculous, but there's not a morning that I've woken up this week that I've not thought, oh my gosh, like I am so unworthy of, of God and of eternal life and of what Christ has done for me. And what do you do? 
Yeah. I mean, my goodness. I mean, all you can do is say like, Christ is my righteousness and he is my confidence and he is my hope and he's my peace and my joy and my glory. I mean, it, there's nowhere else to go. Yeah. I mean, so on the one hand, we're, what we're saying, it's biblical and it's true. And on the other hand, my gosh, it's practical. Yeah. Because if you're mindful at all about your life, you, you wake up every day and you think, gosh, I deserve hell. Mm-hmm. And I deserve wrath and I deserve condemnation and I'm a sinner. I'm a wretch. Right. Like, how could I ever live with God? Yeah. And I mean, this is why Theocast exists, man, because right. this is what we all deal with. And it's like, let's stop kidding ourselves that we can do this. Right. You know, I mean, that's the great de- like deceit, I think, is that, okay. And this is going to sound maybe bad, but I'm just going to say it. I mean, here's the great lie in evangelicalism is that we believe that by the power of the Spirit, we can actually pull this thing off. And we can't. I mean, we're always... What what do you mean by pull this off? But what I mean is by the power of the Spirit, we can actually live a life... That's acceptable before God. That is acceptable before God. That we can actually pull off this thing called salvation and eternal life. We can, in the Spirit, do it. Implicitly, that's the message that exists out there. Yeah, that God looks at your life and goes, okay... Yeah. yeah. Like, okay, now granted, okay, you need Christ and your righteousness is in him, but now that you've trusted Christ and my spirit is in you, you're going to conquer every sin and your life, is, your life is going to get to a place where you will merit something. That's a lie. You can't ever merit God's favor. No. Because it's all or nothing. If, if you're going to think that you can merit anything, you need to keep the entire law. This is Galatians 5. Without Perhaps, failing. Without failing, yeah. this is James 2, 10 and 11, yeah. right? Like you better keep it all. And if that's your position, then it's like, okay, go for it, man. But understand that Christ died for no purpose and you have fallen away from grace. You're on your own. Good luck. It won't happen. And so I don't know. I mean, this is the, the great crisis that we deal with. And this is why this reality is so critical. How could you ever have a moment's peace ever if you thought that, my goodness, even by the Spirit's presence in me, that this is incumbent upon me to execute. Yeah. Can't not be done. That's right. Anyway. I, yeah, so yeah. we're going we're gonna to take this down a little fun. Uh, those of you who are live streaming and those of you, well, live streaming may not work, but those of you who are in this, uh, so the benefit of coming, you get to feel even worse right now. So, Well, you do. Anyway, I, I, You'll be I'm going to stop. I'm just going to be quiet. You'll be just comforted. keep going. You'll yes. be comforted, I promise. The, the hard part about the modern church evangelicalism and any denomination that you find yourself in is that when you walk in and you sit down in those pews, just, just be, you don't have to verbally answer me, but just be honest. Do you really portray everything that you're about? No, I am not telling you everything that I'm about right now, and neither is he. Well, okay? and, and here's the reason why. I'm too afraid you're going to judge me. Sure. And that you would think less of me, which is what we call sin and pride. Yeah. If you live in a culture where everyone goes, there is no one accepted before God, the greatest, the greatest compliment and acceptance that it matters is God, not you. It doesn't matter what I think about you. It matters what God thinks about us. So if we all walk into a room and realize no one is accepted before God, and at some level, all of us are struggling with mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. So if I were to tell you to stop turn and talk to somebody you don't know very well. And I want you to tell them your deepest, darkest sin. Do you think they would be shocked? And the answer would be, yeah. Because guess what? You don't share that with anybody. 
There's a reason why, because you think no one else struggles with it. So here's the great kind of crisis and almost, I'm going to say it, the hypocrisy of evangelicalism sometimes is that in evangelicalism, we're quick to say, oh, we're all sinners. That's common language, right? But, but they, they mean, but like, then, they mean on but, a very. But then, when the rubber meets the road, level. when the rubber meets the road, yeah, like what you're saying, like the deep, dark recesses of my heart, my mind, my soul, the thought of those things being like portrayed on a screen, like the one that's behind us, is absolutely horrifying, mm-hmm. and it's so liberating. And again, we are not excusing sin. I just want to be so clear. Like we are not. Your I mean, sin is terrible. Is blasphemy and caused Christ and it, to be put on the cross. It caused Christ I'm not to excusing be, it. It caused Christ to be put on the cross, and it will wreck your life. That's okay, right. there is nothing good about it. All right, and at the same time, it is so incredibly freeing when we can walk into a church environment, and one of the first things that we all acknowledge together, however this happens, whether it's in the welcome or in a confession or both, it's like, hey, we are all an absolute train wreck. Like we are sinners, and we are in desperate need of something that we could never do for ourselves. That sets people free. And it's like, you, it's ironic that you could grow up in an evangelical culture that is easy. It's happy to talk about being a sinner, but then deep down, you feel like you've got to erect this facade, right? Constantly when you come to church, because if I told people what I really am, they would run me out of town on a rail. Like, well, you've ever seen these movies where, you know, it's in a real world and all of a sudden they discover an alien. Sure. And you're too scared to tell someone else because what are they going to think? Well, you need to go in the loony, the loony bin. Right. That's how we feel about our sin at times. Sure. If people really knew. If they only knew. Then they would think that I'm not saved or I, I am in, I need to be church disciplined. And we, sure. we then the very thing we shouldn't do, we hide it. Yeah. When Paul says, confess your sins to That's one right. another, what, for what reason? So that you can have help. Yeah. Bear you well, one another's burdens. If you say that you have no sin in you, like the truth is not in you and you're a liar. If we, are, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, right? I mean, and that means, that means any sin. I mean, that's not a qualified statement. No, it, it's, it's crazy. And most the, people the stay we, enslaved in their sins. I will confess that I have and did for years. Sure, so be, did I. Because I was too afraid of what the church might think of me. But if a whole church walks into a room, if, a, if believers begin to absolutely willing, I mean, I, mean, I, I can't remember. I've said um, a lot of things in the last few days. Um, so if I've given this illustration, have I already talked about like all the accomplishments Paul's made? Have I said that already? I don't know. Okay. You can talk about it again. No. Okay. So let's just look at the life of Paul real quick. So you kind of did. I did. Okay. So if we go back to the accomplishments of Paul, and then Paul says of himself, and actually kind of lays it out, I am the greatest sinner I know. And you're like, okay, Paul, whatever. Right. And I think Paul really did struggle with some with some hard depression. Sure. And Paul struggled with anxiety. Well, he talked about being like despairing of life itself. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. If Paul is willing to admit that publicly for millions and millions and millions of people to read, I think we should take heart and go of the four or five people that may know so that I might find rest and help and not have to struggle alone. I think I'm going to admit that I am Satan's sinner at this moment. So you can keep living in fear and anxiety of that. Has anybody, all of us have lived in that moment of when am I going to get found out? When is someone going to figure this out? I'm going to be exposed as a fraud. Right. And you, and you are yeah. a fraud, 
And you, thank God, your identity with God is not a fraud. Right. Let, me, let me say this too. The, the word hypocrisy is thrown around a lot. Two comments on this. Um, the difference between the church and the world, this is comment one. The difference between the church and the world is not that the, the world has hypocrites in it and the church doesn't. That's right. That's, that's not the case. The difference is the church knows that we're a bunch of hypocrites. That's right. That like we can never live up to the things that we say. Right. And so it's like when people charge, I mean, sometimes seriously, it's like when people were like, ah, oh, church is a bunch of hypocrites. I'm like, yeah, come on in and join us, man. You know, because that's what, that's what you are too. I mean, people in the world can never live up to their own standard. Can't be done. Now, I've said that, and it's, it's good for us to observe this. We've talked about this some, at least, I think, behind the scenes at Theocast. It's very interesting, the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus attacks. And this is related, and we're going to move on from it after I state this. We often think about hypocrisy as being, well, you say all of this great stuff, but you can't live up to it. The hypocrisy that Jesus attacks and blows up repeatedly in his earthly ministry is one where people are doing all kinds of stuff. They're doing a bunch of stuff. They look incredible in terms of their external righteousness. But then he says, here's the issue. You say that that external righteousness and that kind of external conformity to a written code is what it is to know God. And you don't know God. That's the hypocrisy that Jesus explodes. It's not the kind that we think, oh, well, you don't practice what you preach. The Pharisees were phenomenal in their way of life. But what Christ attacks is, hey man, you're lying to people about God and what it is to know him. That's right. All of this external righteousness that you think is so fantastic is nothing. That's right. Because you've never kept a single commandment that God has given you. 